Hi, I'm Amit Sharma at the All in Food Studios of the Food Decisions Research Laboratory at Penn State's School of Hospitality Management. Welcome to this podcast from our studio facility in the Merritt Foundation building of the School of Hospitality Management. According to the US Department of Agriculture, agricultural activity contributes 10.7% of the total greenhouse gas emissions towards climate change. Granted, compared to other economic sectors, such as industry as a whole, at 30.1% and transportation at 28.5%, agriculture's impact is relatively low. In fact, even residential activity contributes 15% to greenhouse gas emissions. Still, scientists have gotten serious to ask the question whether we can get food without farming and rearing animals. What if we could get food without agriculture and animal farming? Would it be more beneficial to our environment? What would be the societal impact of this as a whole? Could non-agriculturally grown food be more sustainable and even more morally and ethically improved? While we grapple with such questions, the expected future of non-agriculturally produced food is already here. In June 2023, the USDA gave approval to a US-based manufacturer of lab meats to sell their product in the market. Whether we like it or not, in fact, whether we believe it or not, lab-created meats are here. So what is lab meat? And what does it mean for us as consumers and as a society? I'm delighted to welcome Dr. Inhang Jung, who is an assistant professor at Sonoma State University, to discuss this fascinating topic of lab-based meats. Dr. Jung has deep roots in the food and beverage industries. She has culinary training from the Culinary Institute of, Institute of America, the other CIA, professional experience in the food service and beverage industries. And of course, her research was focused on the acceptance of lab meats amongst US consumers. Dr. Jung, welcome to the All in Foods podcast. It's a pleasure to have you with us. Hello, Dr. Sharma. Thank you very much for inviting me. Finally, I'm very delighted to join your podcast at last. <laughs> um, uh, uh, thank you, Inhang. That's very kind of you. Um, I'm going to refer to you as Inhang, if that's okay. Um, yes. Could you, uh, can we start, can, can you give us a brief overview of what is lab grown meat and and how does it differ from traditional meat that's produced you know through agricultural activity right the concept of lab meat um, is that it is as the name speaks itself it's grown in a lab rather than in the field like how the traditionally the agriculture industry used to feed the pig chicken and um, cows to produce um, whatever that's edible. Uh, so lab-grown meat actually has various names. One of the names are cultured meat, in vitro meat. Uh, another one um, from a company is clean meat. So it's not really um, uh, well-defined at the moment because it is still at the developmental stage. There's no lab-grown meat that's available in a supermarket. Currently, the technology of producing lab-grown meat exists. The problem so far in the past few years has been um, manufacturing in, in a large scale in a way that it can be feeding a majority of American population or a large chunk of consumers. 
Um, and also another is to lower the cost of the production. So um, what it is is that you would, or a scientist would take a cell from an animal. It can be beef uh, or a cow or chicken or any other animals. Uh, they can take a cell and grow it in a lab by feeding the cell itself and the cells reproduce. So the concept is that you wouldn't have to kill the animal, you wouldn't have to kill or you would have to wait two, three years for whichever animals to grow fully to um, produce substantial amount of consumable meat. Okay. All right. I have a lot of questions. First of all, oh, and yeah. I think you referred <laughs> <laughs> you you referred to this in your in your introduction the the the, the reference to in vitro. Um, so so you're saying that the, the cell is taken out of an animal. Um, now, do you, do you, don't, does one need to kill this animal or you don't, don't need to kill the animal? So really, you don't have to kill anything at all to produce lab-grown meat. So you just need to harvest a little cell. So it would be like a poke for a living cow, for example and that cell will grow in a lab okay and then you said that you you mentioned about how time is going to be uh, you know it's it's going to be grown much quicker than actually waiting for the animal to grow i mean what are we talking about here in terms of time um so so about the current production of meat um so if we are taking a cow as an example we have to wait um, I don't have a clear number of the years, but I think it all depends on how um, mature you want the cow to be because you can also eat immature cow. <laughs> but um, I think traditional agriculture, you have to wait for it to grow fully. Usually for cow case, I'm sure it will take at least two years to grow fully to have substantial amount of meat um, to make an economic sense to slaughter uh, it to to come up with um, enough pounds of filet mignon per cow, for example. But um, for this technology, you can take a cell from filet mignon part. You can take a cell from uh, a ribeye part, and you will grow a, a chunk of ribeye without growing the head or the intestines or any other unedible, inedible parts of the cow. So nothing is really being slaughtered, but essentially you would be able to take a specific cell from specific breed of cow. Um, so you know some of the cows like Kobe is more prized than the other. So you can take that and grow that um, Mm -hmm. Say filet mignon exactly. So, uh, mm -hmm. growing in a half a pound of filet mignon would take, you know, significantly less time than having have having to wait for a whole cow to grow. Okay. Yeah, you're right. It can take it can it can take easily two years and even more uh, to uh, for the slaughtering of the cow. Uh, but it, uh, are there any estimates right now of how long it would reduce? How how much it will reduce that? time um, for lab meat versus um, traditional meat? Um, I 
No, not at the okay. moment because the accuracy of those numbers uh, vary depending on what kind of um, meat product we're talking about. Chickens, you don't have to wait more than two months to harvest or slaughter. Mm. Uh, right, right, right. It's, you know, so it depends on which product. And also, I think since the technology is still in a developmental stage, um, I think it's still in question. Okay. So uh, the other thing that you mentioned was there, it was interesting. You said that one company is actually called Clean Meat. Um, so clean, clean, tell, tell us a little bit about what you meant by clean meat and how does that relate to, let's say, the environmental benefits of lab-grown meat? So one of the reasons why scientists are developing this product or technology is because its potential environmental benefit. Um, most of the people don't realize by eating meat or having to grow enough cows to feed the world's populations of demand for meat, uh, we are actually creating a lot of environmental problems. Um, significant portion of the greenhouse gas emissions or land being used or any energies being used in agriculture for, say, beef production um, is actually equivalent to those gas-house emissions produced by transportation sector of the world, which is great. We always talk about, you know, how we have to transit to a gas uh, from gas car to electric cars, but uh, oftentimes people don't really realize there are a choice of food can actually impact the environment. Mm, true. And, you know, to your point uh, in my introduction, when I talked about transportation and agriculture, there is that overlap also between the two. Now, going to this idea of using a cell versus actually slaughtering the animal, is there is there any justification of using lab meat from of more of animal welfare and ethical points of view as well? Sure. I mean, um, there are actually two different sides to it. Most of the companies that develop this product will only say that by choosing the lab-grown meat, none of the people who consume meat will have to um, come to an ethical you know, dilemma of having to kill cow to in order to have a steak. Uh, but if you choose a lab-grown meat or in vitro meat, um, you wouldn't be involved with any of that because it's not actually coming from a living um, thing that was slaughtered for the product. Uh, so nothing is slaughtered. But um, in other hands, the opposing view of um, this product or technology is that if people stopped consuming what was the, you know, traditional way of growing cow and having steak, then the necessity of meeting those um, uh, cows would be disappearing. Therefore, there will be um, very little cow left um, in the world. So there will be no cows um, instead of having uh, you know, the cows that are slaughtered for the purpose of creating meat for our consumption. Mm. So there are two sides. Did I make right, sense? Right, right. 
Yeah, yeah. No, no, it does make sense. Um, I think the it, it so when you talked about the clean aspect, I mean, I was thinking that there's got to be there's always there's, there's I'm sure there's the our argument of the cleanliness, quote unquote, of the moral and ethical aspect as well. Besides, just not besides mm-hmm. the environmental. Yeah. Um. Uh, so, uh, Dr. Zhang, we're going to take a, a a brief pause here, but stay with us. Uh, this is a quiz question that we usually bring in for the audience. Um, uh, so once we have done the quiz question, I want to jump into your research, which, which focus on consumer acceptance of lab meat. So, so hang in there. Let, let's uh, uh, first pose the question for our audience. Okay. So for you all, um, our, our listeners, um, today's quiz question obviously relates to lab meat. And the question is, when was the idea of lab meat first conceptualized? And of course, we'll have the answer when we uh, conclude our discussions. All right, uh, Dr. Zhang, we're back. Um, so we, we sort of set the stage a little bit on the, the building blocks of what lab meat is and what are some of the benefits of it. Tell us about your research that you focused on um, that was uh, on consumer acceptance. Uh, what what were you looking for, and what what did, what was your uh, the purpose of your research? So, um, not to be mistaken, this isn't really the sole focus of my research. Um, but for my dissertation, um, when I uh, presented at Penn State University for a doctoral degree. The title was Novel Food Technology Acceptance Model, Application of Unified Theory of Acceptance and Use of Technology. So um, I say novel food because um, as the culture meat is for us, uh, there are several different types of novel technology-driven foods that are developed um, at the moment. The more common products are plant-based meat, like impossible meat that's widely available. But uh, nonetheless, uh, these products are very new to us and it's all very technology driven. And my study uses um, a derivative a version of um, 10 model, which is very famous um, and it's uh, short for technology acceptance model. And the u- the model that I use uh, unified theory of acceptance and use of technologies is more expanded version of 10 model. Um, 10 model only looks at two different variables, the ease of use and the benefit. Um, and the unified theory of um, acceptance use of technology or UTAUT uses more variables to assess um, what are other factors, external exterior factors that are influencing the consumer's decisions to whether accept or not accept. Um, Mm. The previous research, uh, you know, is about, you know, how, um, so there is a variable or a concept called neophobia. So as you know, you, you would probably encounter sometimes some of the people are less likely to try new things. Like some people are more inclined and excited to try new things, but some people are not very uh, open to trying new food. So there is such thing as that, but it only, it not only looks at 
whether this person is inclined to do or try new food or try new things, uh, this UTAUT allowed us to look at um, other factors like um, how does cost perception or social influences or how does hedonic motivation influences our decisions. And also, one of the interesting factors that I looked at is the um, trust in the regulatory system. So how mm. does people's trust in the government influences mm. the acceptance of this um, newly developed technology food? Mm. So what did you what did you find? Um so so there are this fairly complex model with so many variables, but I think the interesting finding that I had from my research was that actually one of the strongest drivers for uh, people to accept, meaning they are likely to try this food, is that not the benefit perception, so the benefits for environment, for benefits for their health, and et cetera. The hedonic motivation was the strongest driver out of the four um, uh, variables that I looked at. So um, four variables What, what does that, that mean? Um, Give us, so yeah. People wanted to try for fun. So they're curious. They're excited mm. about trying new, um, something new. And it's, uh, this means that um, while many of the companies that are advertising uh, products like plant-based meat uh, advertise with benefit um, promotion. So they tell you that it's healthy for you. They tell you that it's environmentally better choice and et cetera. But what I found from my research is that it actually, yes, benefit perception do positively influence the people's likelihood to try. But also I, my finding is that actually hedonic motivation has a stronger motivation than benefit perception. So okay, but explain that. Fun. Oh, explain that a little bit when, when you when you use the terminology hedonic. So they're not interested in the benefits of it, but what would the consumers be interested in? I mean, I'm not saying that they're not interested in benefit perception. Uh, they are mm. um, positively influenced by benefit perception too. But when they see it as a fun thing to do, um, mm. like if you so make a new thing. Like a game, Right, new things, exciting things, or something curious. Um, so less serious than what they have to think too much about. So mm. when the thing about benefit perception is that it's always kind of contradicting with the cost perception. For example, people might be informed from the advertisements that it is actually good for environment and good for their health. But at the same time, their cost perception kind of kicks in at the same time. That what if it doesn't taste as good? Um, maybe it's more expensive, and usually it is more expensive choice. So that mm. is actually another cost perception. So um, in individuals' heads, they will balance this book of cost mm. and benefit. But the mm. thing about hedonic motivation is that it actually bypasses everything. Um, because it's a different sort of system that works in your head. Um, so it's a heuristic. Um, you're motivated not because it's a logical uh, logical uh, answer, but it's something that drives you. 
Interesting. Yeah. And and you're right. I mean, for the most part, companies are not focusing on that. They're trying to focus on what you said were the benefits uh, associated with this. So in so what do you uh, how do you how do you think this has implications on um, you know industry practice, for instance? I think that probably would be the most uh, the closest relevance I, I I drew from what you just told me, right? So told us. So how do you how do you see this having an impact? What what can the industry learn from this? I think. Um... I think if the industry can think about the ways that it can be integrated in uh, more uh, more exciting situations or more fun-driven sort of advertisement promotion, um, maybe it can be placed in a place like a concert um, in a format that's more fun, not like trying to have people sit down and make them think too much about what's the cost and benefits of this product. So mm. explaining things too seriously won't really work as well as making it fun and exciting thing to try. Mm. Mm. I'm also thinking, uh, I'm just throwing this out, I was wondering, you know, there, there are a lot of uh, uh, culinary concepts that are coming up, you know, cutting edge. Uh, they're trying to push the boundaries of, whether it's uh, 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 you know fusion cuisine or um, uh, uh, other types of cuisine, I'm not I'm I'm losing my words here. But do you think in uh, in fine dining, in fact, beyond fine dining, this could be a way to introduce cultured meat and then make it, as you said, exciting and and a new thing. Uh, and it's almost like uh, taking it on on a catwalk. <laughs> yeah, um, yeah, that's a funny reference. But uh, I think, yeah, well, since the product isn't, if we're specifically talking only about the culture meat, since the product isn't available, um, I'm not exactly sure how it can actually be integrated to culinary um, art scene, like such as a restaurant. I think what mm. will happen is that only very few companies actually will be able to obtain a technology enough to produce this in a large scale in a way that it can be actually affordable for the you know majority of the consumers in the world. Um, one of the you know one of the main challenge for this product at its developmental stage is that if you know while there is seem to be so much environmental benefits. Uh, if if not the majority of the consumers adapt this, meaning like switch their meat choice to um, have only the lab grown meat, then the what is projected environmental benefit won't be fully realized. But mm. um, aside aside from that, but I think. One of the another challenge is that the only a very few companies will be able to produce this, and and I think um, the culinary scene will be kind of tied to whatever the format this uh, company comes out with. So since I mean I think there is um. I think a creativity can kick in. Uh, maybe if these companies work alongside with uh, you know, fine dining chefs who tends to be more creative and 
thinking outside of the box, then they、mm-hmm. will come up with something that's extraordinary that's not existent in a today's you know, world. But、um, I think the,、um, there, are, there has been a lot of creativity already coming into play in the culinary scene in regards to existing food products like printing meat. Um, or printing any other products、uh, or plant based meat sort of a thing. So、um, I'm sure it will expand out as it rolls out to the real world, but、um, it's, it's kind of、um, well, yeah, exciting. It's uncertain. <laughs> right, right, right. right, right.、Um, in terms of, you know, you, you talked about the economic、uh, aspects of it and, uh, uh, and also the entrepreneurial sort of the business、uh, angle. Um, what about regulations? Do you, have, you,、uh, have you heard or read anything related to how,、um, you know, so for instance, as I mentioned in the introduction, the FDA gave approval to this company to try and sell. I don't think they've been, they've been able to enter, actually sell it in the market as yet. But has there been any、uh, debate about the regulatory framework?、Um, I actually think. Think, um, uh, the United States was kind of battling on the, whether this product should be approved by FDA or USDA. I think、um, I, I haven't really learned too much、uh, about what was approved and by whom or how they come up with the approval by the USDA. But、um, I think America in general is very open to new technology and they have been kind of forefronting all of the advancements in a new development such as this.、Um, but I think Europe、uh, and European countries are not as accepting to integrate this into their you know,、um, regular consumers just yet.、Um, I think there are Overall, I mean, the case of GMO, the genetically modified organism or the GMO food are totally banned in Europe, whereas America is very openly、um, distributed and consumed in everywhere.、Uh, so I think my prediction for the regulatory in a global scale is that Europe will probably,、um, in large case,、uh, will be lagging in approving this. If anything, but、um, we'll, we'll have to see. <laughs> mm. Yeah, yeah. I think American、uh, with these companies、uh, are backed by a very large companies like Microsoft and other technology companies, like millions and millions of investments have gone into developing these、um, cultured meat or in vitro meat. So,、um, With the lobby also being legal in the United States, I think、um, the approval of the product came earlier than anticipated. But I think,、um, I guess in the next year or two, we'll actually see it in the supermarket. Yeah. Yeah, you're right. And you know, there's, a, there's a huge、uh, backing from large companies, as you rightly said. In fact, the first burger was produced. Backing,、uh, backed by、uh, the, the, you know, the co founders of,、uh, of Google. So, and so that kind of also muddies the water 
Um, uh, but um, in uh, in hang, Dr. Jung, thank you so much for this uh, really interesting discussion. I think we're going to hear a lot about this um, uh, in the coming um, in the coming years, if not months. Um, and as you rightly said, it's probably going to be in the supermarkets before we know it. Yes, um, I've been waiting for it to come out for uh, now, I think, three years or so. Um, I will definitely try when it comes out to a supermarket at least once. Um, everyone has to try it at least once. Um, how about you? Would you try? Oh, yeah, absolutely. You got you to gotta try novel stuff, right? It's fun and it's it's exciting. <laughs> right. Listen, Maybe we'll be together when trying this out. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. Again, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today. Uh, but, but hang in there, we have uh, the answer to our question. You said that it's not going to be so acceptable in Europe, but it's it's ironical that the first reference to it was actually in Europe. Um, the first oh, reference wow. to lab meat. Yeah, the first reference to lab meat was in 1894 when French chemist Pierre-Eugène Marcelin Berthelot predicted that meat meat would get this that meat would be grown in laboratories by the year 2000 as wow. uh, as would make sense Berthelot synthesized several organic compounds from inorganic substances and in doing so he provided a large amount of counter evidence to this idea that organic compounds would require organisms in their synthesis Based on his discoveries, Berthelot was convinced that chemical synthesis would revolutionize the food industry and also predicted that it would happen by the year 2000, when according to him, synthesized food would replace farms and pastures. As he quoted, why not if it proved cheaper and better to make the same materials than to grow them? We should do it. That last part was added by me. Anyway, we might not be there yet in terms of cost predictions, as you rightly said, Dr. Zhang, but uh, one can venture to guess that eventually it's going to come true. Thank you all for okay. listening. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with two or more people who you think will benefit from listening to it. And as always, make safe and informed food choices um, and watch out for those fancy new products. Dr. Zhang, thank you again for being with us today. Thank you for having me. Thank you. Above all, please stay healthy and cheerful. Until next time, from the All in Food Studios, this is Amit Sharma. Thank you for listening. <laughs>